so I'm looking at your videos. You have some great videos. Uh, whoever is your uh, videographer and producer, they do a wonderful job. So tell them that from me. Um, I was watching some of your hunts from last year. You killed a really nice 10-pointer. don't know where it was. I believe it was on public land in the snow right at the end of the season. Yeah, that was in Wyoming. My husband and I um, went uh, white-tailed deer hunting here in, in Wyoming. And it was kind of a <laughs> kind of a Hail Mary because there's not a lot of public land white-tailed habitat in Wyoming. So we got extremely blessed on that. Um, and it seems that's kind of your, your MO. You've been uh, public land hunting for elk and other things. Is that just by... Is it by design or is it because, I mean, like everybody else, you don't own land and and don't have a place to go or or is it, is it the challenge or is it a combination of things? Well, I wish I was rich and I could say I owned a big ranch and I could just hunt my private ranch, but (laughs) I'm a public land owner. (laughs) Uh, No, you know, it's just, it's just how I was raised. You know, we have um, mules and I grew up with mules and my dad just, my mom started it actually. She bought my dad a tiny little pony mule for, packing out deer and elk and then it just it just progressed and and I started riding when I was two and I've had mules ever since and you know it's one of the reasons we wanted to move to Wyoming really is is in Oregon we just didn't have as many hunting opportunities and so my mules were kind of standing around a lot and so we moved to Wyoming I'm doing every hunt that I have on my schedule this year um is on public land for for season seven apart from whitetail which I'll I'll do some um non-resident, you know, private land whitetail hunts in some other states. I see that. You've been hunting in, uh, well, Oregon, Wyoming, Kansas, Missouri. I watched one of your Missouri hunts, your gun hunting. Uh, Tell us about that because I know you are pretty proficient with a rifle. How did that start and who got you into rifle hunting? So my dad was a rifle hunter. I actually introduced my dad to bow hunting when I was in my 20s. Um, But you know, basically I just kind of took everything I learned as a kid and and amplified it. Um, so I had a friend tell me back in 2012, I believe. And he's like, look, you know, you're, no, it was like 2010. He's like, you're really good at, um, you know, horse hunting, but you really suck at two things. And one of those things is shooting a rifle. And the other thing is backpack hunting. I didn't know how to do ultralight hunting. And, um, so I started kind of mentoring with this individual and, and did some sheep hunts as kind of a tag along because I couldn't afford like those types of hunts were just, you know, so far out of my reach. Um, and to this day, I've only done one sheep hunt personally. Um, so they're, they're just a little bit tough to do. So I did some of that. But then I started training with a rifle because what I found was I was on a cow elk hunt at one point for filming for RMEFT milk. And, um, I had a cow at 400 yards and I just wasn't comfortable taking the shot. You know, they wanted me, the, the guide was pressuring me to do a holdover. He's like, well, just put the crosshairs on the cow elk's back. And it was in a herd. And I just, I wouldn't press the trigger. I just felt like it was unethical. It was a little beyond my comfort range. And I thought, you know, this is silly. I need to get better at this and be more proficient in because ethically, morally, the whole thing for me is, is very important that I make my first shot count. So actually on that particular hunt, went back the next day without the outfitter, did a different public land deal and got a cow elk under 200 yards and was successful. And we made an episode out of it. But I, I really evaluated, you know, where where my shortcomings were in shooting. And I I invested heavily in, in learning more about precision shooting and, you know, the 
I shoot for night force and Ruger and Hornady and the combination of my rifle optics and ammo, you know, they outperform anything that I can do. And, and now I shoot extreme long range rifle matches um, here in Wyoming with night force every year. And we're shooting targets out to 2,400 yards. Wow. That's insane. What, uh, what uh, type of shot will you take on a, a deer or an elk today? My answer to that would be, it depends. Um, there's so many factors, you know, I, I harvested a deer in Oregon. It's my Steens mountain hunt. You guys can watch it. And I took that shot on a buck. It was 150 yards and the wind was so strong. And I was doing a standing tripod shot that it was everything I could do to keep the reticle in the vital zone of the deer and that for that situation with the wind, with the position, the 150 yards was my max. So I always tell people, you know, you have to really train and understand the limitations of your equipment understand the limitations of your particular shooting position, but also understand the limitations of um, the particular environment that you're in as well. My goodness. That's very admirable. And thank you because um, you don't hear that type of answer uh, from a lot of people and uh, especially people, uh, let's face it, you're pigeonholed living in the quote unquote West. Um, You see the best of the West guys. You see guys shooting a thousand yards. Like you said, you can do it on a metal gong or a target all day long. But if it's a deer standing there, I really, uh, congratulations, because that is what you need to do. You have to make sure that you can make that shot. Now, if we say, okay, all things being equal, this is funny. I'm going to just insert one little uh, sidebar here. I think we talked about this the other day, but the longest shot I ever took was in Oregon. My only hunt I've ever taken in Oregon. I hunt Wyoming every single year, but I'm on the complete other side of the state bow hunting. Um, but it was 532 yards, and I don't say that to brag. The only reason I say that is I was there with the best shooters, uh, some of the best shooters in the world, and we spent the whole week shooting. They had me comfortable, and I'm like, yeah, I actually can probably take this shot. But then you start throwing in wind and all yeah. this other stuff. My goodness. And then, okay, so I shoot the deer. Long story short, I shoot the deer, drop it in its tracks. Finding that deer in what I thought would have yeah, been you have to get to it now. <laughs> finding that deer in wide open country was not, not, not easy. So, I mean, that's something that I can tell that you have a lot of experience doing. Um, now, when did you, you said you, you got into bow hunting too, and you got your dad into it. Is it kind of like, are you an equal opportunity deer hunter now, or do you prefer one or the other? You mean rifle versus bow? Yeah. Um, you know, I like bow hunting elk. Like that's like my favorite is bow hunting elk. Um, I, I get like a much more significant adrenaline rush target shooting with a rifle than I do out in the backyard with my husband shooting our bow. With that said, I shoot my bow in, in warmer weather. Well, we've been shooting it a couple days a week right now, but the snow has just been horrible. But, um, in the evenings, that's like, you know, my husband, I introduced my husband to bow hunting and, and shooting a bow. He's European. So he'd never shot a bow until we started dating. So, but my husband and I shoot, it's kind of our thing, you know, every night we shoot a bow and I shoot rifles or pistols, uh, kind of combination several days a week, not every day. It's a little more expensive. Um, but I get a more adrenaline rush from shooting, um, with, with a firearm in a competitive or training setting. And then when it comes to like rifle hunting, it's pretty, I mean, like if I find something that I feel like I, I want to harvest that animal, I don't have a lot of doubt. Usually like if I'm like, Hey, I'm going to, this is the one 
for the most part, I'm pretty confident that if I want to take that animal, it's going to be successful. I don't really, I don't really have as much, um, as much doubt with that as with a bow, you know, you might want to harvest something and it still is really out of your reach. Um, where with a rifle is not so much that way anymore. Very interesting. Okay. Tell me about your husband. Was he a hunter before you met him? Oh yeah. My husband's traveled around the world hunting. He has a booking agency and you guys can check out his website. It's jarahunting.com and he's been around the world. And, okay. Actually, and- I, I, I didn't know that was him. Okay. Yes. I know who he is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, yeah. So he's an avid hunter as well, but being from Europe, you know, bow hunting in, in most places is illegal. I can't even take my bow to, to Sweden wow. and target practice. His family has a small estate and you can't even take your bow and just go fling an arrow and, and practice and have fun in your backyard with your family. And you can't target shoot there either. You actually have to go to sight in a rifle or do anything like that. You have to go to a shooting cinema, even, even though they have, 900 acres, you can't discharge a firearm unless you're hunting. And so it's just really, it's different over there. People don't realize here how fortunate we are. That is crazy. That's Sweden? Wow. Sweden, yeah. That yeah. is crazy. Has has he hunted over there? Yeah, so we, we have, uh, his family's estate is about 900 acres, and we have one of the hunting leases on it. So we hunt pigs, and you can hunt moose, and we have the rights to hunt the roe deer on that particular lease and um but like if you put a new optic on your rifle and you want to zero it you have to go to a a designated shooting cinema and zero the rifle and then you can take it in the field and only discharge the firearm in a hunting situation you can't target practice you can't plink you can't zero rifle wow that sucks i mean i never knew that they have a thing called every man's right so people can walk as much as they want around your property and pick mushrooms and smell the flora and fauna, if you will. And, and it's, you know, they have the right to be on your property. And so you do not have the right to uh, discharge firearms. You can't, you can't shoot and anybody can go walking around on your property whenever they want. Correct. Wow. That's, that's crazy. I know people who have moose hunted over there. They've talked very highly of it, but I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, if you were from like the United States and you want to hunt there, you have to like take a test and stuff when you get, no. oh, you don't, okay. no, you don't, you have to have a hunter safety card, um, that's valid. And then you enter that. And then the wildlife in Sweden is managed by the landowner. So, um, there's a quota on like species like moose, but like roe deer, for example, there's no quota on. So as a landowner, you are responsible for the ethical management of that particular species in relationship to the ecosystem that you have on your farm. So, um, that is a landowner managed thing. So if you decide you want to go, you know, shoot 10 deer in a weekend, you can go do that. And there's, there's no tagging. Um, so it's, it's actually very easy to, to hunt there. Um, it's just, there's not like public land opportunities there like you find in the U S. So his family being, this is, this is fascinating. We've actually, we've actually published some articles. This is years ago. I've been here too long cause I don't remember. Um, but we've published articles on deer hunting opportunities in Europe. Um, so the landowner, you said like, so his family is responsible for managing, let's just say the road deer on that property. Correct. The moose are, are, are government managed. Okay. So different species have different rules, but road deer in particular is managed by the family. So my husband is the controlling interest in the road deer on his family farm. So we manage those assets. What are, what, give me a example, like how many, how many road deer do they have on 900 acres? You know, I don't know is how that, many. I mean, overrun with them or 
Is it just no? Like, it's so- not. It's it's like white-tailed deer on a farm. Okay. Very very similar very similar dynamic in numbers and um, they'll do driven hunts where they'll harvest does um, because like whitetail, they're very prolific species. Um, And then Yogi is very cautious in managing for age and then also uh, culling out uh, specific genetics as well. Very cool. Have you had the opportunity to shoot a roe deer yourself? Yeah, uh, we actually got engaged and I shot a a silver medal uh, roe deer. It was the biggest roe deer they've taken on that farm. Congrats. My husband let me take it. It's pretty nice. <laughs> do, do you get to keep the antlers and stuff? or? Oh, yeah, we okay. keep all the meat. And so with all the wild pigs that we harvest, all the roe deer that we harvest, um, the hunting team shares the meat. Because uh, things in Europe, are, they function different than here. Um, so the hunting team shares the meat, and we have it all processed, and then it's a shared it's a shared resource amongst the family or hunting team. Very cool. Okay, I started getting sidetracked. I find that stuff. Fa- <laughs> I find that it's stuff really interesting. <laughs> absolutely fascinating. Okay, so yeah. we were talking about that. Um, I do know also, and it comes through in your <clears throat> just your expertise as far as shooting and firearms. And I know you do the competition stuff. You are a big proponent, Second Amendment person. Um, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. You have a program, or you've been involved in a program called Refuse to Be a Victim. So that is a uh, non-firearms personal kind of protection class that is offered through the National Rifle Association. And it's basically for those people that want to um, fortify their living space, fortify how they perceive the world, fortify how they interact in public spaces and in their own private spaces without firearms. Okay, that's not a firearms deal. Okay, so um, not getting too far into the weeds with that. Um, tell me more about, uh, you, you said, now, your dad was a logger. You did a lot of packing, like like uh, going back in the backcountry. Did he get you in that type of hunting, or was that just something that uh, came some other way? No, no, no. My dad got me into that. Um, I've been going and packing in since I was probably four or five. <laughs> um, <laughs> this little toddler uh, jumping up on a mule? Yeah, well, literally, like there's pictures of me like hanging off the side of them trying to get on and like running out across a meadow jumping creeks and yeah um so, so yeah since I was a small child and and um you know we still have mules and it's still an important part of our family I actually just bought two new baby mules this year and people are really enjoying watching me train them and that's kind of part we're launching a new um kind of self-filmed lifestyle series called our wildlife and a lot of it is based on like building our farm and training mules and just like ranch life Uh, and it's it's going to be a really fun series to kind of put together this year was that just an adventure thing or was it because like this is the way we're um, you know feasibly we're the only way we're going to get in in back there to be able to hunt um i'm assuming you did deer and elk that way well, in Wyoming, especially, it's, I mean, four-legged creatures, <laughs> if you can ride and pack them, offer you a lot of um, opportunity to go places that other people can't and to, to hunt animals that otherwise would be very difficult. Um, for example, like in Wyoming this last year, we packed in, my husband and I, and we harvested two deer. And, you know, in four, it only took us four days, but we were able to pack out in one trip our entire camp, That's both awesome. deer, head hides, meat, like the whole deal. And it just allows you a lot more freedom 
um, to go places that are a lot more remote and secluded. That's pretty, I mean, now you're doing things that I've never done that. Most of us, and I've done this a long time, most of us have dreamed of that kind of existence where, you know, I'm not boxed in on a small property. Um, what what type of advice would you give to some of the people who would like to experience that? Is that something where you've, you know, we, we see a lot, especially I, I watch the Carbon TV shows. There's a lot of this adventure. And, you know, I get kind of jaded because some of the things I know aren't, um, I don't want to say honest, but it's like very yeah. much, very much sugar coated. Like I'm going to show you that I'm this big rugged dude. And I'm, I'm like, most people aren't doing that. Like, is, is it really feasible for the average person to be able to do that? Or is this a situation where it's like, no, you're going to have to go with an outfitter if you want to experience this type of uh, adventure. Yeah, I hundred percent need to go with an outfitter <laughs> if you've never done it. Um, I mean, like even this year, I've been doing this my whole life and this year, hunting this last fall was the first year that I didn't go with my dad. Right. So it was me and my husband and a cameraman and my husband is, can handle a horse, but he's not a horse man. <laughs> um, and luckily my cameraman's actually really good with horses. Um, but you know, him, my cameraman and my husband threw all the gear on the ground and they looked at me and they're like, all right, pack it up, put on the mules. And it was all on me. Like a hundred percent my dad wasn't there and and I was like, Oh boy. And the responsibility of feeding the mules and caring for them and, and they're animals and they all have a personality and they all have um, their own quirks that as a, as a handler or having, you know, as an owner of them, you need to know what those are so you can forecast potential situations that might be a problem. Like for example, the, one of the mules I ride, he jumps water really bad I don't really care when the pack saddles on him. He can jump whatever he wants. If I'm riding him and I know we're going to have a lot of creek crossings, I'm not riding that mule. <laughs> I'm riding somebody else because I don't want to jump him all day because he's so big. It's actually kind of intimidating. So, um, you know, it, you can't just go rent horses and just say, oh, I'm going to go do this and, and it be safe because you can get hurt really, even with the most experienced they're animals, they're strong, and they can hurt you. So, you know, if this is an experience you want to have, 100%, you know, you want to do backcountry on horses, you need to go with an outfitter. Excellent, excellent. That's Those are great insights and uh, something that I was thinking along those lines because we see it with other, it's with everything in deer hunting, basically. Oh, I want to go out west and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot 500 yards and you've only shot 150 yards. Well, yeah. You better practice, you know, or if I want to, I want to go elk hunting and I want to go bow hunting. Well, you, you have to be able to shoot 50 yards. Well, you better learn how to shoot 50 yards well before you get out there. Yeah. And the same thing with uh, that backcountry. Did you do uh, camping kind of stuff like too? Or um, did you get go out and back, you know, backcountry and, and do deer camps like that? Yeah. 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 yeah we camped out. Um, we camped out for our um, mule deer in Wyoming this year. And then in Oregon, <laughs> My, um, I didn't have my mules in Oregon. I cashed out all my non-resident point or my resident points in Oregon last year. And, um, my mules were in Wyoming. So my dad's buddy is in his seventies and he has mules. We actually sold him his first mule. And so he was really gracious and he's like, well, I'll pack you guys in. And he's retired. So he packed all our stuff in for us and we walked and we hunted 11 days on foot um, and I can tell you, I just wanted to thank God and kiss every one of those mules on the way out. Cause I was toast by the time we walked out and I was so grateful 
to have that mule pack out my deer because we were, we spent 11 days with no shower in a two man tent and it was, it was a grind. It <laughs> had know? to be fun though. You had, that had to be exhilarating. Yeah. Oh, it's, it, it was not, awesome. To get yeah. off the grid like that, you just yeah. don't have those opportunities. So uh, mule deer or whitetail, I know you probably have hunted what mule deer more than whitetails. Um, in your, in your view, what are the differences in what do each bring to the table for you as a hunter? Well, I would say I've actually maybe hunted more whitetail than mule deer oh, because okay. um, I tend to be able to hunt. Whitetail are a lot more affordable to hunt as a non-resident than mule deer are. Mule deer are becoming a very expensive non-resident species, which is another reason why we moved to Wyoming because mule deer, you know, they're starting at, you know, $7,000 for gap-fitted hunts and they're going up from there at this wow. point, you know. So mule deer have just gotten very expensive to hunt. So I've hunted a lot of whitetail. Um, the difference is they're just completely different. The whitetail rut, my husband had not hunted whitetail in a tree stand much. He did done it a couple of times and we went whitetail hunting two years ago together and he was my cameraman and I'm in the stand during the rifle hunt and the stand is shaking because my legs are shaking. And he's like, why are your legs shaking? You need to get it together. But the whitetail rut, when they're chasing and that brief, you know, there's only so many days a year that we get to experience the whitetail chase. And the deer were chasing that day. And I was so jacked up. My legs were shaking. The whole stand was shaking. And Yogi's like, you have to get it together. And I'm like, a big buck could step out at any second. And you're, you know, you have to be on your a game stop them age estimate them decide if you want to harvest them in like seconds yep. so it's really to me almost like a huge adrenaline rush similar to what like i would experience in a contest like or a rifle comp competition um because you just never know you so you're just like you know you have to you're like on pins and needles and um and i love that about whitetail hunting even with a bow you know you never know what's going to run by or if you have a decoy out what's going to run up to your decoy like last year we had one day i think i decoyed nine different bucks in i didn't harvest a buck they were all pretty young but just to have that many deer come by within bow range and and do what they're you know they're fighting they do this whole you know primitive like behavior going on and it, it was it's just exhilarating whitetail doing that white hunting is incredibly fun um with mule deer typically you know we're not allowed to hunt during the rut in most states most of the time it's like a pre-rut um, montana does have some peak rut hunts but that's one of the few states. So mule deer is more of like the spot and stock, digging them out, um, trying to find them, figure out where they're feeding, where they're bedding, um, where they are in the rut. Are they getting ready to transition into rut? Um, I did a really cool hunt in Utah a couple of years ago. I drew the, or I won the book cliffs. Um, oh, wow. Tag. And my husband and I spent 12 days down there before I finally found a deer I wanted to harvest. But that was a cat and mouse game. It was trying to find them, you know, hidden behind brush and like just putting on all these miles. And so it's just a different, you know, oftentimes just a very different type of hunting um, where you're just really like, tra like traditionally like seeking and glassing and hiking and covering miles and just just totally different ends of the spectrum. 
You're not kidding on the on the out of state stuff too. I mean, Wyoming's gotten insane. Well, whitetail tag yeah. is like six ninety five. I think I just had to pay for my tag for this year. Uh, it's getting out of hand. I mean, it's like, and I do hunt, I do hunt with an outfitter. Um, there is a little bit of uh, public land hunting on the eastern side, but um, I agree with you on that. The all new Phase Four. This bowl gives hunters comfort, accuracy, and the ability to customize their ideal setup for different kinds of hunting. For more information, visit your local Matthews dealer or go to matthewsinc.com. I know there's been some decline in mule deer populations. Have you been seeing that where you've been hunting? So mule deer are suffering, I think, nationwide, primarily from big predators. Um, The lack of sound mountain lion management is really affecting mule deer populations. So, for example... In Oregon, I had a home on 60 acres and I had a winter feeding station where I would feed the mule deer, which in Oregon is legal to to do that. You know, I'm not hunting them over it. I was just trying to help them. I was in their wintering ground. And when I first acquired the property, I had eight young bucks all the time. And then I had some mountain lion issues where I found five mountain lion kills within 100 yards of my home over the course of owning that property. And I went from having all of these young and up and coming deer to, to no bucks the last couple of years I lived there and it's, it's predation. And it was interesting, you know, you have all these people say, well, the mountain lions only attack the weak. I had on trail camera a week before bow season, I had a really nice four point buck I was going to harvest and I was just waiting for season. He was coming into my food plot. He was on a pattern. I was like, okay, in five days, this deer, is, I'm going to harvest this deer. I've been watching him for years. And um, he was with a little crippled deer that was a tiny buck and it was dragging its foot. And I, and I almost, I almost wanted to bring in like my nephew to harvest the littler deer because it was clearly not going to probably survive long. Well, the big deer and the little deer came into my food plot. I have photos of them together at like 11.45 at night, eating side by side in the food plot. My dad found that mature buck dead within 30 yards of where I had photographed him. So as soon as he came off camera, the mountain lion jumped on his head, grabbed onto his large antler rack, twisted his neck and killed him. So these mountain lions are targeting big bucks, mature bucks, because they tend to be solo. They tend to be more uh, solitary. And they have a handlebar to grab and twist. They have leverage. And so the lion could have just as easily harp, you know, maybe not as easily, but it could have killed the, the, the like crippled little deer that was limping and you know, clearly had something wrong with it. But instead he went for the big, young, strong deer that had the big rack that they can grab and twist. And so it, the Steens unit in Oregon was was hammered with mountain lions and they the state of oregon brought in a government hire and they harvested over 100 mountain lions wow. and a lot of people were you know celebrating this and i and i'm poo-pooing it like you just paid someone to do something mm-hmm. that an ethical hunter would done pay for free. yes well not done for free but well, actually generate revenue right, for conservation right, right the animal wouldn't have been wasted the meat wouldn't have been wasted and instead these these animals get piled up and disposed of under the anti-radar and what good is that doing anybody that the the management has to be done the ungulate populations are suffering and then you add wolves onto it and and unfortunately 
the wolves and the mule deer, uh, wolves are a heavy predatory species and they're wiping out mule deer and they're wiping out elk. And and then you take into consideration on top of that, you have black bears. Uh, We're in Colorado. Black bears were proven to um, be the highest in um, uh, mortality increase for for calf elk and and fawn deer. And, And so... Um, the, these mule deer are really suffering because predator management is is a lot of times emotionally based and not science based in reality. And um, we're even seeing it Wyoming grizzly bears, for example. You know, they Wyoming has met the grizzly bear recovery numbers several times over, and every time they meet them, they raise the bar again. Well, now, like for example, last week I was with SCIF. And we're having to hand out bear spray and do fake bear charging simulations so people can learn how to draw their bear spray from a holster and remove the safety because people are dying every year now. And so it's it's not just the ungulates that are suffering from poor management. People are now also really suffering that are living in these communities. 100%. And thank you for shedding light on that. Uh, we have that same problem here. What you just said about grizzly bears, we have with... Uh, timber wolves here in Wisconsin and our original deal was 250 wolves before management would kick in we have like 2,000 wolves now we don't have any management Uh, I know your situation in Wyoming with uh, bears also cats you can hunt them there though right Um, and you get those tags as a resident pretty much over the counter I believe right I don't feel like mountain lions in Wyoming are as big of an issue as they are in Oregon right um, Oregon is is where they were bringing in government government trappers, if you will, right. uh, to to take out massive numbers of cats. In Wyoming, they have hunters that manage those, and they have quotas set um, that are responsible, you know, management numbers that are set by fish and game professionals, and and the hunters are able to kind of keep those those numbers in check with with. Uh, with those, you know, uh, quotas in mind. So they, I know the, the quotas in Wyoming are really specific too. They're like those management zones on the eastern side. I'm like, I, I'm looking at it. I was like, okay, I, I wanted to go hunt one. I didn't, haven't yet. But uh, so in Oregon, they have nothing is what you're saying? In Oregon, you can hunt mountain lions, but you're not allowed to use dogs. Okay. So in essence, you're not hunting them. No. <laughs> like, I mean, the, the, I, I had five deer killed within a hundred yards of my home and people are like, Oh, did you kill the mountain lion? It's like, well, yeah, you have to see it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And even though I live in my home, I'm armed in my home, they're hunting at night. I'm not out there with the spotlight 2365, you know, uh, the chances of you finding them during the day is slim to none without a dog. Slim to none. Correct. Uh, on a cat because even like, when even when they're living in your yard like yeah. i mean well people were like almost almost shaming me because i didn't get the mountain lion killed and it's like well how do you kill something that you can't see you can't see them and you can't find them i've got buddies who tell me stories about hunting uh this would be in wyoming where they've had cats like stalking them so the, yeah. cat, the cat would be up high in the rocks and these guys were bow hunting, and they'd start, they just kind of get a funny feeling and look, and there's a cat up there, just like a, like a house cat, you know, ready, you know, following them. But like you said, a cat, no. A bear, uh, black bears, we have tons of those. Uh, baiting or dogs, thank goodness, here. Um, so you have yeah, a couple Oregon, different... Yeah, in Oregon, baiting and dogs for bears is illegal as oh well. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's crazy. 
Yeah. So Wyoming still has a baiting season for, for black bears, which I think is very ethical. A lot of people say, well, how could you think that that's ethical? Because when a bear walks up to a bait barrel, I can judge its age. I can judge its gender. I can judge everything I need to know about exactly what I'm harvesting before I do that and make a very informed decision. Bears are extremely difficult to field judge. Um, and in Oregon, they don't even care it's perfectly legal to kill a sow with cubs as long as the cubs are a year old because the bear population is so bad. Because it's so and bad. in most states, it's completely illegal to kill a bear in a family unit. So exactly. it's just because of the poor management practices, they've opened up, you know, mountain lion, you can kill, if you could find them, you can get up to two tags a year um, for mountain lion and there is no closed season on them because they want you to harvest mountain lions if you have the opportunity. Which is great, but like you said, that's like finding a needle in a haystack. I'd never harvested a mountain lion in Oregon. And you owned land. So yes. it, and I had mountain lions killing deer on my mountain land. Mountain lions killing deer. They yeah. are efficient, and I will also echo your statement. I believe you said Colorado. I didn't know it was Colorado, but uh, black bear predation on fawns yeah. is just Horrible. unbelievable. Unbelievable. Throughout this... Uh, country okay let me get to uh, the well this was supposed to be our original topic but um <laughs> pursue the wild tell me how that came to be how, how did you get this out? first of all what did you do before that what did you um, do before you were like making tv shows videos and all sorts of stuff so in my in my 20s i sold real estate and i worked with um safari club international so i was on like a local chapter stuffing envelopes. And then I was vice president and then I was president of a chapter and started doing, I went to DC and lobbied with SCI. And then later in life, I um, worked with um, She Outdoor Apparel oh, and okay. also Armor. And I helped both of them. I helped She Outdoor Apparel rebrand from She Safari into She Outdoor Apparel. And actually I was the designer of their current She logo way back. Okay. Way back. And then I helped Under Armour launch their women's hunt line originally. Not aware of that either. Okay. <laughs> so you know then, you, you know Kip and Colby, obviously. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, Jason Hart, Pete Engel, Eric Crawford, like that whole team kind of brought me in an eon ago. Okay. And I started co-hosting Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's Team Elk television show, and I co-hosted that with Brandon Bates for six years um, before I started Pursue the Wild. And I started Pursue the Wild because RMEF came to me and they're like, look, we're going off network. We're going to launch our own, um, basically, network on their own website. So their own hosted type network, which was called Elk Network. I don't think they do that so much anymore. Um, and so they're like, it's really a good opportunity for you to do your own show if you want. And we'll give you a network, a digital network to air it. And so I, I went to SHOT Show um, with a pilot and I had tons of relationships over the years with people and and that was in 2017 and I've been doing Pursue the Wild ever since. Wow that's awesome so this is something I mean you I mean I didn't realize that you had started working for Safari Club that long ago. It's I was the youngest I think at the time and possibly still today in history uh, chapter president of a SCI chapter. How, how did you get into that I mean like um, was it just your love of hunting or so when I was a kid, my parents were always involved in RMEF and okay. my mom and dad would, would go to banquets and do that whole thing. And, um, she's talking Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The, the yeah. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Foundation. And, and so conservation was something was always part of my family. And then 
um, we had a local safari club chapter and I just met some people that were really involved in it. And they're like, oh, you should you should be a better, bigger part of what we're doing locally. And and I'm still working with Safari Club to this day. So and I still do stuff for Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation as well. That is awesome. That is awesome. It, it's uh, it's great to hear your background and it's very um, refreshing to hear your knowledge, especially on the biology part. I really, really enjoy that. What are some of the things? Let's. Um, I don't want to take this too far over, but um, what are some of the things? I ask everybody this. Um, what are some of the things that bother you with today's hunting community? Things that bother me? Bother me. <laughs> things you might see on social media, things you might see in our community. Um, things, I mean, the way other people might be portraying themselves. I don't want to get this into a negative thing, yeah. but I want it to be a, a positive thing saying, how can we rewrite the narrative on some of the things that might not be the best uh, for the hunting community? Well, I, I think that as a whole, we need to support all legal forms of hunting um, because as we chip away at each other, we chip away at everyone. Um, so having support of all legal forms of hunting, um, whether you choose to hunt in your back 40 or a high fence, or I don't, you know, as long as it's a legal method of take, I think people need to support that and get on board and get behind it. Because if we chip away at each other, we're just losing as a whole. So that's, that's one of the things that I see that occurs online, you know, quite a bit, you know, a lot of negativity surrounding that. Um, but, uh, I, I try to obviously educate people and not get angry. Um, so I don't really have a lot of anti-hunters that come after me because, um, for example, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation did a really cool initiative, um, the Hunting is Conservation Initiative, and they did some infographics that uh, spelled out state to state and then nationwide how hunting is conservation. And so I feel like people should arm themselves with more factual information so that when people approach them with an emotional narrative that's misleading they have facts to back up the reality of hunting um and you know there's a lot of people that use words like trophy hunting to kind of belittle and demean uh, jason matzinger is doing a new film called selective and i think it puts a different spin on what trophy hunting truly is or should be and how we need to combat that narrative with you know we are not barbarians we're selectively harvesting and this is for the better of the herd and you know being better at explaining that i, I don't think a lot of people understand the north american model of wildlife conservation i don't think people really understand how hunting is conservation you know so if you take in a for example Pittman-Robertson Act was founded in the 30s, and it is a self-imposed taxation, and it's actually the firearms manufacturers and archery manufacturers, they, and ammunition, they pay, they pay an excise tax, and, and that is a self-imposed tax, and that is the, the lion's share of um, conservation funding that the, that the government has every year, and it's not just hunters aren't just doing that. That is anybody that buys a firearm, anybody that buys ammo. So your shooting sports, your competitors, they're all contributing to that and probably even more so than hunters. Hunters double down on it with state license and tax purchases. So 75% of state allocated uh, funding comes from the 
purchase of hunting licenses and tags. And then we double down on that again in these free market um, conservation events like banquets. And, and so a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, that deer tag at Mule Deer Foundation sold for $725,000 and they're just poo-pooing it. And they're all, they're all sorts of pissed because they can't pay that. And it's like, wait, step back. You can go hunt deer in Utah or you can go hunt deer or wherever and not spend $725,000. The gift that this particular person was able to give was $725,000 that goes on the ground to help habitat and wildlife in those species not only survive, but thrive. And so I think hunters really do the lion's share of conservation and we do a terrible job at saying how much money we generate and what we truly do to conserve and enhance um, not only the ecosystem for wildlife and, and hunters, but also for hikers. I've had like three thank you moments in this podcast and that is, that's, <laughs> that's one of them. Um, I just posted on, uh, go to the deer and deer hunting uh, I think it's the Instagram page from a couple weeks ago, everybody. What she's talking about, the excise tax, I posted the number. I can't remember how many millions of dollars it is, but she's 100% I think it's, spot I on. Think it's, I think it's in the Bs at this point. It's it's a lot it, of money. Yeah. And the hunters said, we want to pay for it. But it was, it was the hunters, the shooters, and it, it, archery came into it. So if you buy a pack of broadheads. And broad now heads, you have the Dingell Johnson Act for on the fishing side as well. So all that money is going to help fund studying kerner blue butterflies and stuff that we might not particularly do as a, a hunter but 100 percent correct the the thing that i find i don't find i'm not going to say funny i find the thing, the thing is is every time an anti or a non-hunter laces up their hiking boots yep and we head into the wilderness or national forest or blm they are enjoying the work that hunters and shooting sports and gun owners are providing to them and the experience that we are providing to them. And it's a gift that we've done for free. We've done for free. Uh, well, through our, we've done voluntarily by, well, by, yeah, pay, by paying mean, this. Right, yeah, but the thing that bothers me too, is I don't want somebody to say, Hey, thanks for that. We'll take it from here. Well, number one, you're not going to, because you're not gonna be able no. to pay, pay for it. Number two is like, we've built this. So we should be able to um, uh, partake in it. The one thing that I do find, particularly i don't want to say odd but you being a young woman i don't know how you have not been a target because i've seen so many people we had melissa bachman on the podcast here she's been just unmercifully like just attacked and other people attacked by here's a woman she's got a show uh she's producing uh videos and here's her with a dead animal um, why do you, th- I'm not, I'm, I'm glad that it hasn't happened, but why do you think, um, you haven't, uh, received it? Is it because of your conservation approach or is it something else? I think it's uh, keystone species specific. So anti hunters or non hunters, uh, target people that publicly harvest specific species. Oh, okay. Um, so I, a lot of it, and you'll see, uh, a pretty African animal, uh, an ostrich. I post, or, yeah. I've posted video of, or you know, my episode. For example, I, I hunted a, with a bow and arrow, a sable in South Africa, and I was hammered over that. Oh, the meat is wasted, and you're just a trophy hunter. And it's like, wait a second, you don't understand. These cultures are sustained through hunting, right. and it's ignorance, right? And so I try to teach that in my episodes. Um, but it is, it is a species specific. It doesn't seem like anybody on the anti or non-hunting side cares about white-tailed deer. They're like, oh, yeah, shoot those. Those deer, we're going to run them over on the street anyway, right? Like, they, they, they don't have the emotional connection 
because I think it is ingrained in them that people eat white-tailed deer. Right. It is a consumptive animal. They cannot conceptualize eating a bear. Therefore, you can't eat bear. You can't eat mountain lion, but actually you can just yep. because you don't conceive it as being normal. I'm I'm a huge advocate for for hunting and harvesting and consuming horses. Feral horses need to be hunted, they need to be harvested, and they need to be eaten. If you go to any grocery store in Europe, any meat market in Europe, they sell horse in every one of them as burger, steaks, round, and lunch meat, and there's a huge variety of it. And we have a huge feral horse population in the United States that nobody's managing, everybody's protecting, and they need to be harvested and they need to be eaten. And, and it's the species that's like totally taboo. You can't eat a horse, well, why not? Like why just because your emotion is tied to it i was in germany they were selling donkey sausages i have mules okay i pet donkeys i love them but they're also an animal that has to be managed uh and so there's this i don't get emotional with it that way gosh dang yeah and wolves too gotta manage wolves Love wolves. Wolves have a place on the landscape. Absolutely, 100%. We'll never disagree with that. Are wolves endangered? No, there's 60,000 wolves in uh, North America. 60,000 wolves. Yeah. But I, I think a lot of it is just, you know, depends on the species you harvest. There, You know, if you want to go and you want to do certain hunts and you don't want people to yell at you, don't post it. Uh, and then there's some people that post it because they want the attention. Absolutely. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying, you know, you put out there in, on the social media platform something that you know is a highly volatile or um, argued species. Uh, buckle up. Put your big girl pants on because you're going to get some hate. <laughs> That's good, just part of it. 100%. And when you said... Um... Don't post it. I say that should apply to everyone. That's, I, yeah. I guess I'm just getting tired. I'm getting, um, I'm getting downtrodden, weary from seeing, excuse my language, stupid shit being posted on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, because somebody yeah. is sitting there saying, oh, I want to be important too. Just do it because yeah. you love it. If, you, if you're a tr true hunter and you love it, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but um. Don't, don't do it for the wrong reasons. And I but think don't play the victim position. Correct. When you post a species that you know darn well and good, people are going to get emotional about and then act like you're some sort of like, oh, poor me. <laughs> These people came after me. I'm a victim. You're not a victim. You know that people feel like this about this species. And if you want to put it out there, treat it as an educational outreach opportunity. Black bears, I post black bear harvest all the time and people don't really come after me for it. They don't really say a lot for it, but there's still some explanation and education that goes into harvesting a black bear. Yes, you can eat it. This is what you do with them. And this is how they're not wasted. And this is why it's important. And so, you know, if you're going to do that, you have to be able to also teach with my sable in South Africa. I had to do a lot of teaching with that. I had to teach people like, hey, this is what happens to the meat. This is the consumptive quality. You know, when you harvest an animal there, they literally take the intestines <laughs> and they clean them and they use them for sausage casings. They grind bones for uh, beef feed or fertilizer. Like literally there's nothing wasted. Every scrap. Um, so every scrap, every piece of the animal is used. Um, we, we took food um, with Safari Club International on, as part of their blue bag program. We took food and supplies 
fresh meat and supplies to kids in orphanages because the HIV rate is so bad in these countries. Half these kids don't even have parents because their parents are passed away from some horrible disease that they can't get control of. Who's feeding them? Hunters. You know, and so you have to be able to, if you're going to post this content, do it diplomatically and be able to educate what's behind it and not just play a victim card. Awesome. Wow. Thank you, Christy. That is that is fabulous stuff, and we appreciate you sharing that with us. Her name is Christy Titus. Her show is Pursue the Wild. Her podcast is Wild Uncut. Where can people go, mo- uh, go to to find more about your shows, your videos, your content, and everything about what you're doing? Uh, my website's pursuethewild.com. Uh, Instagram is just at Christy Titus, uh, K-R-I-S-T-Y-T-I-T-U-S, so Facebook and Instagram. I do have a Twitter, although I don't. Do I followed it this morning, by the way. That, that's I my, don't that's tweet. My I'm, <laughs> the, I'm, the old, I'm the old guy on Twitter, and that shows, but go ahead. I don't do Twitter. I, yeah, I have a Twitter page, but I don't Twitter. Um, but I encourage everybody, go to Carbon TV to watch Pursue the Wild and, and stream that podcast because I really feel like um, we have to collectively gather behind people that aren't actively censoring us. Facebook and YouTube, although I love those platforms, Instagram, they're great platforms, but I'm so shadow banned. We are so censored. You know, they punish us for posting rip and grins and kill shots as if that's not happening every time a domestic animal is harvested and packaged up at the grocery store. So they want to pretend that reality doesn't exist. That's fine. I just encourage everybody to go to carbon. And then later this year, um, I'll be airing pursue the wild on uh, pursuit channel um, and see uh, uh, awesome. season three and four. Awesome. That's, that's our, that's our home. Our home yeah. is pursuit. Uh, Ted joined us on pursuit this year. You're on pursuit. That's awesome. Glad, yeah, glad, very to, excited glad to hear that. that. Well, thank you, Christy, very much uh, for joining us. We very much appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your morning for this. That was my pleasure. Sorry to get everybody's blood pressure pumping with my... <laughs> oh, I loved it. I loved it. You got mine going. I didn't need any more caffeine. I didn't have to summon the coffee gods to, to, to keep me awake anymore. <laughs> Thanks. All right. For Christy Titus, I am Dan Schmidt. Thank you for joining us for Deer Talk Now. You can find Deer Talk, the both the audio podcast version wherever podcasts are found, and also the video versions on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Please, all we ask you to do is like, subscribe, and share. That's all we ask, and we will keep bringing you these every week, every Thursday, um, and also at DeerAndDeerHunting.com if you want to see the whole lineup. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next week for another episode of Deer Talk Now. Deer Talk Now is brought to you by 10 Point Crossbow Technologies. Whether I'm in a tree stand, ground blind, or spot and stalk hunting, I know the Nitro 505 is up to any challenge. Check one out at a dealer near you or log on to 10pointcrossbows.com for more information.